Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Amen. Well, today uh, we're going to visit another old friend. We saw a good uh, friend last week as we began the new year and looked at uh, the oldest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 90. Moses uh, wrote that great psalm, the psalm of the ages, if you will. And today we're going to uh, visit another psalm. And I was surprised to see in my study, it had been uh, five or six years since uh, we turned to the pages of this And uh, I told you, you ought to consider uh, the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament your friends. You sit and listen to their counsel. If you open your Bible through the week and you're learning and uh, you're diligent in worship and have an open heart and open mind, and so Peter and Paul and John and, and David and Moses, these ought to be some of your very best friends. And some of the great portions of the Word of God are stand repeating in a fresh look. And I prayed this week that God would give me a fresh look and an old friend. And uh, God has done that in some amazing ways. The text doesn't change, but we change. We're growing and developing. And uh, we're not the same that we were uh, five years ago when we, we read Psalm 139. So take your Bible and look at that if you've not found it already. There's a Bible under uh, a lot of the seats. If you don't have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 139. We're going to consider this psalm uh, as we, uh, I've entitled it, The God Who Searches Your Heart. And uh, that's an apt description and title of this uh, wonderful psalm. Next week, to give you a heads up, we're going to return to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We took a a little bit of a break, and we're going to look at chapter 7, So you may want to do a little reading of that in advance as we'll discover some wonderful things about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So today, the God who searches your heart. In our study of Psalm 90 last week, we discovered that uh, God was the bridge of the ages. Moses writes, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. It's like uh, infinity that way and an arrow going that way. So remember your math class, algebra? Infinity, whatever that means, it staggers our puny mind. God's existence, he's always been. From this point to that point, there is no point. It just goes on ad infinitum, we say, uh, thou art God. And that, that is true, and we saw that. <clears throat> this means in part that God has been the dwelling and or abiding place of his people from the beginning of time. And Moses finds great uh, encouragement in that, and so should you. That you're not alone. You're not some ship abandoned floating out in the uh, North Atlantic. You know, they find various vessels out there from time to time. It's, just, it's kind of a weird thing, right? You don't have to go down to the Bermuda Triangle to find some weird stuff, right? Hans and Tanya are going down there this week. We're going to see you again after it? Uh, are we? <laughs> yeah. They're going, that's an anniversary trip, right? Oh, birthday. Going to sail out of New York when the Jets uh, uh, get uh, defeated, right? Are they going to get... Yeah. Yeah. 
down there. And they'll find abandoned ships at sea sometimes. You're not like that. God has been the dwelling place of his people. Whatever and all that means, I'm sure I don't know exhaustively. But God dwells and inhabits the praises of his people when we gather as a, as a corporate body and we praise that God inhabits. He, he is the dwelling place of his people and he has always been. How about that? Isn't that wonderful? But I, I asked a question, and it's on your sheet, but who is this God? Who is he? What is he like? And, of course, the Scriptures teach us we learn something about God by the big book. That's uh, Jim Boyce's description of creation. When we look at the creation, the created order, the world's there, it really is. There's some in high levels of philosophy that aren't really sure. Don't pay good tuition money for those kind of classes, okay? It's really there, and it really has order and design. And the sun, as we say, using phenomenological language, I love that word, I had to practice that a long time, phenomenological language, the sun does rise. So we go like, we're educated, right? The earth is spinning, the sun stands still, but uh, it will come up tomorrow, just like that great uh, musical, right? It'll come up tomorrow and the next day until God's Son returns and there'll be a new heavens and new earth. God is faithful. The world really is there, and you can look at it. And the closer you look, the more amazed you'll be, outer space and all that. But then God has given us the little book, right? The Scriptures, the Word of God. We love the Bible. We're not bibliolaters. Some, some would accuse us of being uh, those that idolize the Bible. We're not. We love the Bible because it teaches us of the Lord Jesus from cover to cover. The road to Emmaus, search the Scriptures. They teach of me, Jesus said, all the way through. And so we love the Word of God. So we say, well, who is this God like who has been the dwelling place of his people through all these years? Well, we learn some things about God from his creation, just like you would learn about a, a, a wonderful watch and take it apart see the glory of, of the designer and maker who could make such a timepiece. It's the same thing of the designer. Well, when we look at the Word of God, we find out more specifically the glory of God, don't we? Well, David wrote Psalm 139, and in composing it, I use the word composing because, remember, the Psalms are songs. It's the Hebrew hymn book. And he composes this, this psalm, and he teaches us a number of things about the glory of the God that is. And look at the Lord Jesus when you see this. He is God manifest. He reveals the Father. And in it, he tells us, Davis tells us about the glory and the wonder and the awesomeness of God, that he's truly great. You know, we, again, I remind you of the, of the limitedness of language you know, man is the thinker, men and women are the speakers, women speak more than men, of course, but uh, uh, we, we have the ability of language, right? Uh, syntax and grammar, we can communicate, pass down knowledge, generation to generation. Just think if uh, you're mute and couldn't speak, how frustrating that is, and some people have been that way. Sometimes a stroke will hit, and someone who has spoke all can't get it out, and how frustrating that is. Language is a, is a great gift that God has given. God, there's a, a God in heaven who speaks. God said, let there be. He communicates. He's given us that ability. Far different than the animal world with grunts and groans and smells and all that kind of thing. 
They don't write novels. Have you noticed that? Your parakeet never wrote a novel, <laughs> never wrote a poem. You know, Edgar Allan Poe might write uh, The Raven, right? Nevermore, nevermore, right? Ravens, boy, they got killed yesterday. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, that's, wow, that's more response than when we were singing. Oh, I don't understand. <laughs> but uh, God has given you the ability of language, and he speaks, and we speak. And yet, there's a limit to it. How do you describe in language that great gift God has given the wonder of that being of God who's infinite? You can't. You just can't. You just say the best you can, and you realize I'm hardly getting started. I'm talking about the praise of, of God who has always been creator of all things. It blows your mind. It does. It's right well it should. Well, in this psalm that so many of us know and love so well, there are four qualities of this God that Moses wrote about. Now David's going to give us more information and God through his pen writing scripture. And we see four qualities of the Lord that, that should affect us. You know, the end of theology is not, well, I know all this stuff, right? It's kind of the great challenge of seminaries and graduate schools. You know, we fill the heads and minds of would-be pastors and, and scholars with theology and the end isn't to win arguments. I'm going to go and hit them over the head with the Bible and all this the theological planking that I've learned. <laughs> That's not the end of it. Sometimes in our early years we think that. I got all the answers. Well, uh, the point is you don't get all the answers. There's still a lot of them out there. Maybe you've discovered a few more of the questions, but the end of theology and the way it is, and the end of your understanding of who God is and salvation and life ought not be pride, it ought to be on your face worship. You know that? The privilege of coming to know God more and more ought to drive you more and more to daily worship of the sovereign God that is, of the almighty God that is, of the holy God that is, that the God who agapazo loved the world. What kind of God is this? I'm very unlovable, and so are you. There wasn't anything in us, believe me. We didn't smell good, look good, or he wanted, you know, I'll pick you on my team. It was in spite of who we are. What God, it ought to drive us, what kind of God is this? And it ought to drive us to worship. And so David uses language, though it's limited, and, and he lays down these planks of the glory of who this God is, and he's worshiping God all the way through it. And so it's a reminder that ought to be our life. Whatever you do, if you, when you're working, you do it under the Lord, it's a worship to him. It's like music. And uh, your thoughts and in your life, the way you conduct yourself in your home, your deportment in life and your character, growing to love the Lord and serve him. You're like a symphony of praise, a sweet-smelling savor that goes up to him. Worship, because we have come to know him. He's really there, and he's not silent, as Schaefer has told us. Well, we ought to live in a way that pleases him. Wow. Well, the first quality we discover in Psalm 39, and we'll read verses 1 to 6, is that God is omniscient. Now, that's the old Latin description. Uh, it simply means that God knows everything, and he always has, right? That means every dimension of your life is known by God's penetrating knowledge. Every dimension of your life and mine from beginning to end, from the very first day of conception to the end, 
You know, God didn't say, oh, I didn't know you were going to live at this point. You know, God never said, I didn't know. I say that all the time. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> and things that I did know, I lost, right? They say that, right? If you don't use it, you lose it. I learned a little German way back in Spanish. I labored through that. And, and a little bit of Latin, a lot of Greek, a lot of Hebrew. I have a tough time with English sometimes. How about it? Amen? Yeah, I've heard you speak. That's right. <laughs> you don't use it, you lose it. Wow. And yet God has known every, every dimension of your life is known by God. Look what David says in verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit. And I was going to give a number of, uh, it's a merism type of grammar here, from this point to that point, all the points in between. Look at what he says. You know, Lord, when I sit and when I rise, and all the moments between. You perceive my thoughts from afar. It means even before I think them. You discern my going out and my lying down. You, you, Lord, are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your, in the Hebrew, it's palm. You've put your palm upon me. Such knowledge is far too wonderful for me. Mm, too lofty for me to obtain. Yeah, there it is, God's omniscience. David expressed in this uh, the, the theme of the psalm in verse 1, and there it is. Uh, you've searched me, and it's kind of a conclusion, therefore. Therefore, you know me. You've searched me. And therefore, you know, have you gone to the airport lately? They'll search you all right. Yeah, they'll take pictures of you. Oh, my. A couple guys with a bomb in their shoe and all the rest. And holy cow, we got naked pictures everywhere now. And the, for me, that's forever me. I get, you get titanium in your body and forget it. They gave me a little card at the orthopedic. That oh, just show this when you go to the airport, and they'll let you in. <laughs> I thought it was a free pass. I showed the first guy. Says, "Let's throw it away." You think terrorists don't have those? <laughs> you mean I have to? Yeah, stand over there. Put your arms up. <laughs> oh man, you have searched me, and therefore you know me. You know every dimension of me. Well, what's that mean? That the Lord has a perfect knowledge of David. He had it, and he, and he has it of us. To say that God is all-knowing, what's that mean? It means he knows all things. He knows them completely, everything, exhaustively. God knows all things. He knows even the possible. Yeah, we see that in the Lord Jesus when he, he talks to those at uh, Capernaum and, 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 and rebukes them because they, they didn't all believe him. And he said to them, what, if... Uh, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you saw, they, they would have repented. That's a hypothetical. He knows all things, actual, potential, hypothetically. It's like a multi-level chessboard. God has laid it all out from beginning to end. And we're, we're stymied by one chessboard. Do you like to play chess? You know, some of you are still stuck on checkers, right? And God has it all worked out. Man. Phenomenal. All things, everything, actual, all events, all creatures, past, present, and future, all at the same time. 
Wow. Yeah, we live in a world that people are impressed by geniuses, right? There's a certain club. If you have a certain IQ, none of, none of you probably are qualified. But uh, I don't either. But a certain club, I, I, Mensa, is it Mensa? Is that it? Mensa? Mark, you might be in it. Yeah. <laughs> Todd, you're probably in it. Some, some of you guys are real bright. Texas bright. Jim, are you in it? Bob Albright. Bob, yes, he's not here. Right, Lenny? No, he's not in it? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. He talks about the invisible nat- natural world like I, looking at it. I was kind of looking at him one day. He was describing something, and I still don't. I still, I had trouble memorizing the periodical chemical chart, and he, like, sees how they join. I don't know. I don't always, Anyway, uh, we, we have a world that's enamored with geniuses, right? You're like, wow, he's a genius, right? What is that? That's less than a thimble. I believe me, God's, you think God's impressed? Why, I'm impressed with that person there. I don't think so. God's knowledge is immediate, total, absolute, exhaustive. Wow. He doesn't have to wait to see. Now, sometimes you'll see that verbiage in the Word where God waited or he made us, uh, it was sequence of moments, and he makes a conclusion, now I know. <clears throat> See that with Abraham, with Isaac, in Genesis 22 and all that. But God is coming down and speaking on our level. Thank you, Lord, for coming way, way down. I understand that. God knows all things. He knows the heartaches and the pains and the sorrows, the challenges, the failures. He knows you better than you know yourself. And one of the amazing things, let me jump to the, one of the applicational conclusions. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you the very most. John 3.16, you know it well, right? God so agapazo, agape. He agapads the world. God so loved the world. Wow. That he gave. God so loved that he gave. You know, you can give without loving. You know that? A lot of people give out of obligation. Okay, ba ba ba. But you can't love without giving. Men, if you love your wife, you'll give to her. You're to love her like Christ loved the church. God, the example is our Lord, our Father in heaven. God so loved that he gave. Wow. What a knowledge. God has always known all things, never went to school, never learned anything. Wow, that's amazing, right? Think about that as you're in your studies. You never learned anything. Doesn't mean he's disabled or a disabled learner. A lot of that today, struggle with that, learning disabled and disability that way. In fact, God never discovered anything new. Christopher Columbus thought he discovered the new world, didn't he? This is India. He thought it was India. We laughed. Boy, didn't he know better than that? India, holy cow, the West Indies. God never discovered anything. He knows what's beyond Jupiter and the far-flung galaxies. And you know there are billions and billions of galaxies and stars. It staggers our mind. And here we are on this little dot of a planet called Earth, the blue, the blue planet. And here we are. We can't find life anywhere else. Oh, please, if you're there, let us know. The great SETI project, 
government takes our government money, and they have these big billion-dollar listening devices out in the Southwest. Please, if you're there, answer us. SETI project. Oh, my, what a waste of money that is. You know, someday Christ will come gloriously, pass through the heavens, and he'll come down to planet Earth, the only place that there's life in all the universe. You see, regenerate, unregenerate natural man can't believe that this, if it came from nothing, and we really have no reason to be here, certainly it's happened somewhere else. Because it's a rejection of God and his word. God made the earth inhabitable, and the Bible says he put inhabitants on the earth. That's you and me, and you didn't come from a tadpole. You're less than Adam and Eve. Think of it. The degeneration of the genes and the gene pool and the inherited diseases that we accumulate, we're a fraction. We can hardly live three score and ten and four score, right? Hardly. Maybe, maybe a hundred. You ever seen someone 110? Are they living? I don't think so. Doesn't look it, right? We're a fragment. And they used to live a long time prior, just the downward decline. And someday it'll be all changed. Can't, I can't wait for that. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. Wow, God knows all things. And he's never amazed. We are. Wow, I didn't know that would happen. Wow, wow. God's never amazed. Wow. Well, David unfolds this knowledge. He does so in verses 2, two 3, and 4. With David's thoughts, as we read, they're known before he, he even thought them. God knows that's a scary thing, Right? Sometimes I've heard the evangelist say years ago, and I've used it myself, to say, how about if uh, people could read your thoughts? You know, sometimes we're easily read, but not all, are we? Aren't you glad of that? How'd you like to walk around with a screen behind your head with a projector flashing up for all to read what you're thinking at them? Would that be a scary thought? Oh, I think I'll stay indoors, right? <laughs> Going outside tonight, not me. And yet God knows our thoughts. And that's who we really are, incidentally. You know, that's really who we are. It's the way we think. What do you think about when no one's around? That's who you really are. Grow in Christ. Grow up in Christ so that you love him with all your heart, your thoughts. And don't have hatred thoughts or lustful or perverted thoughts. Hmm. Uh, all his thoughts. Second, verse 3, God, he knew all his travels, all the points in between. That's what he's saying here. My going out and my lying down. All the points between getting up in the morning and laying down at night. And number three, he knew every, his every word. God listens to our words. He knows what we say even before we say them. Wow, isn't that something? I don't see parents washing their kids' mouth out with soap like they used to. I used to be parenting 101, at least in my mother's book. Get over here. I knew I was in trouble. I heard you say that. Where's that dial soap? Yeah. And you know what? We used the dial for a while, the bar, and then we went to the liquid, and I discovered the liquid's not as good. Just a little home experiment. You can wash that out a lot quicker, but that dial stuff gets stuck between the teeth there a little bit. And it, it, you have a garbage mouth, my wife said, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. That's really how God hears our every word. Sometimes us adults need to go to the kitchen sink, right? And get a little of that. Lord, forgive me for that. Uh, deliver me of that vulgarity. We live in a day where people aren't even sure on swearing anymore and vulgarity and 
and not forget using God's name in vain. That should never cross your lips. You ever notice that? People use the Lord's name in vain. I've yet to hear someone yell, Oh, 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 Muhammad. I've never heard anybody say that. Oh, Buddha. Have you? Please let me know. If you ever hear anyone say that, I've never heard anybody say that. Well, they'll use that name that is above every name. Well, when they hit their thumb with a hammer or something didn't quite go right or they'll say it in a gasp, oh, my God, I hope they're calling out to God. Now, our folks just need to get their mouth washed. God hears every word. That's what David is saying here. Wow, amazing. Wow, and four, all his daily activities were completely familiar to No hiding places, none where it's impossible to escape from such knowledge. God's piercing glance, Spurgeon wrote. And David's response to this amazing knowledge was simply to praise him. He says, he says just that, does he not? I praise thee, thank thee. Such knowledge is too wonderful for It is beyond me. Praise the Lord. Wow, that's amazing. Well, God's omniscience. We say, what God is this God that has spanned the ages? He's a God that, that knows everything. Because he has a plan that includes all things, includes your life and mine. That you're born, that you look the way you do, and you're in the right family. God's in charge, and you're not. He's the potter, we're the clay. So thank him for it. Bless the Lord. A second, he says, verse 7 to 12, a second quality of the Lord is that God is omnipresent. His inescapable presence makes hiding impossible. Impossible. Paul wrote in Acts 17, in him we live, move, and have our being. God is omnipresent. We live uh, in the very presence of God. R.C. Sproul had for years in his devotion the Coriam Day. And he urged believers, practice living in the presence of God. Why? Because you do. You live in God's presence. And David goes on to say, look at, look at the verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he imagines a number of places. If I go to the far-flung heavens, Yashayim, you're there. I make my bed in the depths, and I was down in the grave. It's from this point to that point, and you're there too. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And then he imagines darkness. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. The light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Wow. God's um, omnipresence, his inescapable presence makes hiding from God impossible. Our first parents thought they could hide. Adam and Eve, who uh, cast us into sin in the garden, Genesis 3, right? Well, they said, well, we, God's going to come and visit. He does every afternoon. Let's go hide. A lot of people do that. Maybe you do that. Even as we, Well, God doesn't really know. Maybe I'll hide from him. People hide in education. They hide in wealth. They hide in pleasure. They hide in all kinds, behind all kinds of trees. And thinking to themselves, God can't see me. He sees everything about you. We live in his presence. He's omnipresent. It's inescapable. 
David, who had hid for years, being chased by that maniac of a king, Saul, he wonders now whether it's possible to hide from God. He's not himself attempting to flee God. He knows it's impossible. But he is thinking, what would be the case if someone should attempt such a thing? And as I said when I read it, he imagines three possible places. Heaven or hell, up or down, yet the Lord is there. Listen, hell is terrifying, not because God is absence. Well, his presence, in a sense, his blessed presence is absence, but God runs hell. God will be there. It's not Satan. He'll be cast uh, in torment forever and ever there. And those that reject Christ, God will run. It'll be very orderly. Whatever God does is that way, you know. But heaven or hell, God is there. How about that? Uh, east or west, that's this light racing across the western uh, uh, part of the globe. Um, that's what he envisions. That, that He discovered if he goes west all the way around the globe, even God is there. You know, Jonah thought that. I'm going to run from the face of God. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I don't think so. Where do I resign? Yes, he cannot resign. He goes down to Joppa, finds a, finds a ship. Be careful about circumstances. We read too much of God's will into that, don't we? He had the money. He said, well, God, you gave me the money. I had the money to buy the fare for the boat. And the boat was there, and they had room, and they received me. A lot of time we go like, well, you know, I mean, I did it because uh, the Lord gave me the money and gave me the opportunity. No, it's complete disobedience. I didn't tell him to do that. He was running from the face of God. And he learned you cannot run from God. They're down in the deep, swallowed by some great uh, marine animal, right? Three days and three nights, he discovered, whoa, God is even here. Amazing, omnipresence of God. And even the darkness, right? This is no help. Dark, light and dark are the same to God. Darkness may hide us from others, but not from God. There's a lot of sinning that goes on after dark. Have you ever noticed? It is. In cities, they talk about two groups of people. After dark, there's a whole group of people that come out. I don't know, they crawl out of their caves or what? They've been sleeping all day? I don't know. And the, the daytime folks that are working there, they hustle out of town. I'm a commuter, you know, I'm out of town, I'm out of here. The cover of darkness. But what uh, David's right is he said, what kind of God is this? This kind of God, darkness and light are the same. Wow. I still like to try one of those night vision glasses, you know, the infrared. It'd be just fun to do that, just to see uh, with the, the moon rays. I don't know how they do that. Maybe we can put those on. Some of you were soldiers, and you wore those. And I'd be like, man, I'd like to try that. They're pretty expensive. The Russian ones, I saw, though, you could get those quite a bit cheaper, but they probably don't work very well. But uh, I'd like to try that sometime, at least that night vision and give an idea of what it's like to see even in darkness. Well, the author of Hebrews agrees with David. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God, Hebrews 4.13. Jesus said, I'm with you always. That's that presence of God with us to the end of the age. There's no hide-and-seek with God, none. They say, none. As a kid, I always loved playing hide-and-seek, hounds and deer, whatever you called it. I even had fun playing that with my granddaughter over Christmas time. We were down in Georgia, and little Taylor, she's something. She had chip off the old block. I was sitting there, and she went and hid, and I could hear her a little bit, but I couldn't find her. 
I go, where is that girl? And I could hear her over in the dining room area, and I bent down and looked under the, the table, and, uh, and she wasn't there. And I kept thinking, where is she? She found a good hiding spot. And I, she had me stumped for about three, four minutes, and then I saw the tablecloth move on the dining room table. I go, like, is that the, is that the heat? You know, with the, no. You know, there she is lying silently on the chairs, the cushions. Of the, so when I looked under, there's no one under the t- And I told Sarah, she is a good hider. And she wanted to know where she was hiding in case sometime she's looking for her. <laughs> Little Taylor, ah, you found me, Papa, she said, right? And I did. <laughs> I was proud of her. Man, oh, man, it's quiet. There's no hiding place with God. You hide under all the dining room tables and lay flat on a chair. God is there. Some of you don't know Christ, and you need to know that. The darkness, the travels, the east and the west, the height, God is there. He knows everything about you. You live in his presence. You ought to come to Christ and be saved if you're not. Hmm. God so loved the world that he gave. Gave for you. Come to him and know him. Own him as your own. So you can say with David in another place, the Lord is my shepherd. He may not be the shepherd of everybody, but he's my shepherd. He's my savior. He owns me and I'm his. He's mine. Well, God's omnipresent. Third, look at God's omnipotence seen in his creatorship of all things. Both you and your days have been designed by God. Did you know that? All your days. Look what he writes in, in this 13, 14, 15. For you created, there's his creatorship, my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Again, the end of theology is worship. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. That's the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, that's the mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me. There it is. God has ordered them. Whether they're great or small, were written in your book before one of them came to be. God's omnipotence is creator. You and your days. All of them have been designed by him. All of them. David celebrates the Lord's power and control or life's beginning in the womb. The Lord wonderfully made David, and he made you. David lived around 1,000 B.C. And here we are, the second millennium A.D. How about that? 3,000 years later, and it's still true. You knit me together. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He praises God. Huh? Well, a quick examination of our body. I can't, I can't uh, share a lot of things with you. I don't have time. But uh, you, do you know you're fearfully and wonderfully made? You really, you, we, we just take it for granted sometimes. We get, we get upset if we gain a few pounds or something, and, and we end up thinking we're less than what we are. You're, you're a marvel to behold. You are. Uh, Did you know that your brain weighs around three pounds and that during your lifetime of 70 years, it'll hold 100 trillion bits, that's T, trillion bits of information. 
your brain is far superior to any computer that's ever been made, ever. It's amazing. It's a living organism. It's not hardware. It's growing and developing through experience, forming new synapses and connecting in, in thousands and thousands of ways. Phenomenal. Did you know that you, your heart is absolutely amazing? Actually, it's two pumps in one. You know, not only do you need to have your blood oxygenated, and it does that in two chambers, but needs to go throughout the whole, your whole body to replenish with oxygen and take away the CO2. It's amazing the way you're made. Your, your heart, we could camp out on that, pumps 8,000 gallons, 12,000 miles every single day. That's an average. 8,000 gallons. How much is that? You know, 8,000 gallons is a lot, of, a lot of blood. It's enough if it were fuel to keep a jumbo jet in the air for 40 hours. That's longer than going to Cutter and back a couple of times every single day, your heart. And you, can't, you don't even give it a break. It rests between beats. <laughs> I, I think they ought to unionize. That doesn't seem right. I get a break, a 20-minute every... No, it doesn't work that way. And not only that, it pumps through 12,000 miles of, uh, of veins and arteries and capillaries every single day. 12,000 miles halfway around the earth at the circumference or at the equator. 12,000. We're like, oh, you know, I, am I, I maybe, you know, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I, I had on the musing this week a few things. Jeff sent that out uh, on, the, on our skin and the three uh, part layers of skin that we have. Each are phenomenal. We just look at it and go like, well, what's that? You know, the outer core is dead. You know, it's a crust. It's like iron. Jim, you've been wearing that, what's it called, body iron? Bo- body armor. Yeah, that's good stuff. I was going to buy it, but it was pretty expensive. Under armor. Is that it? Jonathan was wearing one of those. Your body, your skin is like that. It generates, and it, the way it's laid there to protect. And your skin is your largest organ in your body. About 10 pounds, right? And you shed about 9 pounds a year. Talk about snakes, right? Shedding skin. Make sure you change your sheets. About 9 to 10 pounds of skin every year. And if two of you, your husband and wife in bed, that's 18 pounds, that's a gross thought, isn't it? But it protects you. I mean, there's all sorts of things around and on your skin all the time that would destroy your organism. I'm telling you, we're fearfully and wonderfully. How about your fingernails? Aren't you glad they're there? That they're not stuck like other places, you know? Like, and aren't you glad? I, I say that because I've, I, your elbow just, for eating. Just, isn't that right? Isn't that amazing how that? How about if it was a little short? You're like, you can't get to your hamburger. You know what I mean? Well, that's an anatomical accident, right? Fearfully and wonderfully. How about the systems of your body? The five senses, we, we marvel at that. You know, the eyes and the ears and touch and smell. And, and Ladies, you have a far keener sense of smell. Did you know that than a man? Yeah, you know that. It's amazing. The ladies in our family, they hold up uh, the little children's diapers and stuff. <laughs> go like, I go like, oh, I can't smell it anyway, but I don't know why they do that. 
<laughs> but, uh, and then what about all the systems? You know, your bodies, the bone structure is amazing. You know, in 1889, when Eiffel designed the Eiffel Tower, you know where he got his idea for that structure that was the highest structure in the world at that point? There was a friend, there was an acquaintance who had uh, done study of the femur bone, and particularly uh, where it goes into the, into the pelvis structure. It's something that's near and dear to me. And they noticed inside that the, uh, the, the trabecula and the way the structure, like scaffolding, supports that off-centered bone in the hips so that we can walk. And there's another man who did the mathematical analysis of that a few years later. This is in the 1800s. He came up with a calculation to show how it's wonderfully designed to carry the weight. And Eiffel took those design and with minimal amount of iron designed this structure called the Eiffel Tower based off the design of, uh, of, of the hip. Amazing. Amazing. And if that weren't enough, you have a whole system in your body that fights disease and repairs. I mean, we think of it. We cut our hands, right? I cut my, I, I got a cut the other day. Like, all right, put some Bactine on it and a Band-Aid maybe. And it heals over. And you go like, yeah, there it is. And I talk about that all the time. If you had a little fender bender, ah, we just put it in the garage and about three weeks later it'll grow back and be fixed. It won't happen. It will not happen. But our bodies do that to some extent. We're grateful for that. And all the systems, you know, the uh, endocrine system, the digestive tract, all of it, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the closer you look at the genetics and the DNA and the genes and, and the marvel of that, and Mark, you've talked about the, the teeth and the structure and all of that. Amazing. And we have, uh, notice, uh, two ears, and they're funneled forward. Like, well, that's an evolutionary accident. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we can hear a little sack here. Some of you like to puncture it, right? And you get a little earring and things dangle down on that. You say, well, what's the purpose? They discovered that it collects blood in there. Aren't you glad? It helps keep the cartilage warmer. Your ear could fall off in those Buffalo winters or Pittsburgh or wherever you're from. I'm telling you, the closer you look, the more amazed you are. And how about fingerprints? You know, we're not all the same. God has stamped your identity on your body. That's you forever. And the retinal identity, sometimes the security, or using the retinal checks and all. One of a kind. You are unique, special. You're not junk. And David marvels, fearfully and wonderfully made we are. And the hair and the beauty and the skeletal and the muscles. and Beautiful, it's beautiful. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, David goes on quickly so we can get done here. And he highlights several things. And number one, the Lord watches over the whole process of his development in the womb. And you and I as well. In verse 15, in that secret place woven together. In the depths of the earth is a figure of speech in the Hebrew mind for the womb. And number two, even at this point, all his days are designed. All of them. Not only the length of it, but the content and the quality of his days. God has a plan. He has a plan for your life and for mine. And Paul has told us that God has made him, us for himself. For you have been made for God. He's the potter and we're the clay. And so I just remind you that abortion is a horrible sin. 
the extinguishing of life in the womb of a person. It's not a woman's body. It's forgivable. Praise God for that. Some of some in our congregations and days going by, maybe here, have suffered through that. Bad choices. And God forgives and he cleanses and wash, washes us. And we ought to be pro-life always. That little child is moving from the earliest of stages and is phenomenal. It's a unique person. We ought to support that, pray for that. It's a crying sin because they cannot defend themselves. Life, all life is sacred and holy. Well, God is the omnipotent creator. Not only is God all-knowing, is all-present always, and he is, he is uh, almighty, seen in his creatorship of us, and finally con- con- concludes and closes with the fourth quality, that God is loyal. His loyalty to you should invoke your loyalty to him. In 17 through the end. How precious, David says to me, are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them where I to count them. They would outnumber the grains of sand. When, I'm a, when I awake, I'm still with you. That is in thought. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? The poor those who rise up against you, I have nothing but hatred for them. You count them my enemies. Seems very different from then the earlier part of the psalm. And what's going on here is David is musing on the fact of God, the quality of his loyalty. God is loyal to David and to his children. You know, there's a song that says, the man sings to his lover, right? You're always on my mind. I love it. I love that song. I always think about faithy that way. But how much more so, and that's what David is saying about God, that we are always on his mind. Always. There are not a few thoughts here or there, or I forgot about you, but now I remember. But you're always, we are always on his mind. His thoughts for us are innumerable, 18a. It's not an occasional bit of attention. And so he says there that, because of God's loyalty to us in his thinking. It ought to invoke our loyalty to him. That's the whole point of this. And in what way should we do that? How should we respond by this loyalty? Well, the first one is that we should separate ourselves in life from those who practice evil. Away from me, he says, away from me, bloodthirst. Away from me. That doesn't mean that we leave the world. We live in a world where most people don't know Christ. He's not saying that. He says, don't jump down and join them. Be careful. You have a sin bent in your heart as well, even as a Christian. And it's almost as if David's saying, you know, I have to be careful because I don't even trust myself. You know, I realize with one hand we hold on to the oracles of God's word, and the other hand we reach out to rescue the perishing. Care for the dying, but I have this holy distrust of the, my own sin bent within me. God's loyalty to David and invokes his loyalty to God in, in lifestyle and in practice. Living uh, what we used to call would be a separated lifestyle and practice. And second, we should do this by responding in loyalty to God's desires. Asking him to search our heart. Loyalty to him. 
what's that mean? Well, it means that we ought to, if you know Christ, you ought to discipline yourself to growing in holiness. What's that mean? It means to be like God, to be like Christ. God didn't save you just to give you a ticket to heaven when you die. How great that is, right? God is developing and, and, change, and, and growing you up in the things of Jesus. You ought to love the Lord now more than ever. You ought to be more and more like Jesus, being, be, being conformed to that image of Christ. And so we say, well, his desire for you is that. You have to read the word. You gather with the saints. Holiness, how else might it be? In service, God has saved you to do something. Get off the bench. We need a church that's active here. When we gather and when we scatter, God has given you things to do. Given you talents that only you can do. I can't do it. I can do this little thing I do here. And, uh, and I love it and I love to exercise the gift of it. And God has given each one of you gifts and abilities. Use them for his glory. Serve him. If you're a mechanic, be the very best mechanic that you can be. If you're a teacher, teach under the glory of God. Or architect, or doctor, or, or homemaker, or mother. Ch- all of these things do it to the glory of God. Organizing a, a, a zillion different things. Do it to the glory. I serve him with that. Uh, how about bearing witness? And when you do that, you will bear witness. You are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then open your mouth and share of that hope that lies within you to those that know not Christ. I pray that each one of us would be burdened this year uh, with one person, that God would put one person on your heart that doesn't know Christ, that's unchurched, that you would say, Lord, I'm not very good at this, but I want to share the love of Jesus with them. I love to see by the end of this year that one come to know the Lord Jesus. And, and, and maybe many of them added to grace. Wouldn't that be great? It would change our whole church. It'd be exciting. We'd come here and find out who's, wow, that's serving the Lord. That's bearing witness. That's, that's being conformed to his desire in living for Jesus. When will you do it? If you don't do it this year, when will you do it? You don't have any guarantee that you'll live the whole year. Oh, I pray for that. Oh, may that be true in my life. I pray that way for me. And then in worship, that God would just meet with us and be pleased as day to day we worship. And then as we corporately, as a church, worship, being conformed to, uh, to his wishes and desires. And so he ends this psalm in 23 and 24 with uh, the great searchlight. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive or sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Wow, we need to do that. What a great way to end this this song, this song of the God who is there, the God who searches our heart, the glory of God. Oh, we need to do that. And when God shines a spotlight on sin, and, and, and we battle sin, and sometimes sins are deep old habits, aren't they? And there's a variety of them that we have. We need to say, Lord, purge me of that. Cleanse me. And keep doing it until he does. And stop doing our sin. Lord, I want to be pleasing. You know everything about me. Search me and cleanse me, Lord. Please do that. Well, what are some lessons for our life? Number one, 
Know that it is impossible to hide from the Lord. Impossible. You cannot do it. Don't even try. And we talk about being an open book, right? An open book. You cannot hide. My mother at points in my growing up years would say, God has equipped mothers with eyes on the back of their head. You ever hear anything like that? I could say, well, Mom, how'd you know I did that? God has given a special gift to mothers, equipped them with eyes. Really, where are they? You know? <laughs> where are they? Move the hair around, right? Your life and mine is an open book. God knows how we spend our time, our thoughts, our leisure, our work. He knows our checkbook. He knows our hymn book. He knows our relationships. You cannot hide. You can't. Don't kid yourself. Live for him. Truly. Just say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. Number two. Look at number two. God's knowledge, I remind you, is a threat to you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a t- it's a terrifying thought, isn't it, to be discovered? You know, you thought, well, what I did in darkness or what I did uh, uh, in my thought life or what I did here, and I thought only I knew about it. And now to discover, I've been discovered. What am I going to do now? Listen, you're not paranoid if someone's really after you. And you and I are utterly known. It's a terrifying thought. It really is. If you know not Christ here, or if you're a believer and you profess, I know Jesus, and you're not living for it's a terrifying thought. For God is the final judge of all, and he will review each one. It's a threat. It is. Just as Adam and Eve, a small picture of that, chose to do wrong and disobeyed, and God held them accountable and dealt with them. That's a small picture. That's a terrifying thought. Number three, God's knowledge is a great encouragement, a great comfort to you who strive to love Him and serve Him. You know, we strive to love Him and serve Him, and sometimes we fail, but God knows our heart, and He knows we're trying, and He, and he knows about it, and sometimes it seems like so much is against us. We want to do right, and we feel the press to compromise, and we go like, It's encouraging to know that there's one who knows, who really knows, the Lord. You know, sometimes they say that in in certain environments. Uh, Let's say you go to a school where there's almost no evidence of of godliness, and they'll say that to a university student. If they just had one friend, they could make it through. Just one. They could share with. God made us to be social. There is one. His name is the Lord. And he knows what we go through. Our tears and our sorrow, the dark valleys, the disappointments, and aren't there many in life? There is one. And we can cast our every care upon him, for he cares for us. Number four, remember the one who knows you best loves you the most. I love that. Because a lot of times you think, with people, right? Well, if they really know me, they won't like me. I'm not very likable. I've had a lot of people reject me. You know, my laugh, they don't see my humor. 
they think this, they think that. And so they go like, if they really, so we kind of hide a little bit, right? We do that because we're timid and shy and we've been hurt before. But blow all that away with this thought, because David writes it rightfully, the one who knows you and I the best would not love us anymore. I mean, there's real confidence to live for the Lord. And when you and I stumble, it's not like, oh, I didn't know they were going to do that. Get up, he says, get up again. Get up, get up, get up, get up. Praise God for that. Number five and last. Number five. You cannot hide from him. And if you're here and you know not Christ, they urge you to come to him. You know, you can do that in a simple prayer of faith. You don't no great display or any of that, but just in the quietness of your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me and make the payment for my sin. Thank you for saving me. And you'll be saved forever. Whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Wow. Well, Moses writes about that great golden gate, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Well, what kind of God is this? We move back a few pages in that Hebrew hymn book of the Psalms to... Uh, we go to Psalm 139, and David begins to help us to understand the greatness and the grandeur of God, seen wonderfully, most clearly, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? He is the glory of God, the crucified, risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. That's the God who is. My Lord and my God, Thomas said. My God. Hmm. Let's stand and be dismissed.